Hey, it's so great to have you here. Thanks for coming. Really pleased that you joined us today and so glad to have you listening in. You know, we do these programs for you, the listeners. So if you weren't here, it would be like, why should we do this? It would be pointless, but you're here and I'm so glad you joined us. We're going to have a great a great look at the scriptures today, and God has some really good things for us, and I know you're going to benefit from what he has to say, and hopefully I can do what he has to say justice, and hopefully we can do together for each other what would help us grow and stretch toward God's high calling, because we want to have faith, and and that's the point of our time together is faith is, and we're exploring this idea of faith, and today we're going to look at that and that's why it's so important that you're here, because it wouldn't be good without you. It would be futile. It would be like, okay, so why? You know, you know. I guess it's like this. It's a little bit like decaffeinated coffee. You, you know what they say about decaffeinated coffee, don't you? Have you heard this? And, and with respect to all of the people that drink decaffeinated coffee, I get that. But you know what they call decaffeinated coffee? Are you ready? I've heard it called, why bother? Well, it kind of makes sense. Without the caffeine, why bother? People drink coffee for that uh, bother, I guess you would say. Um, and that's that's the point of this program. If you're not here, why bother? So thank you again for joining us. I'm Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. And as I say, and as I want us to always remember, we do this for you. And we want this to benefit you and help you stretch toward God's high calling because God has things for us and he wants us to grow us in his direction. So I'm really glad you're taking that journey with us. I want to give a shout out and a word of appreciation to my church for their support of this program and this endeavor. They would agree with me without question that we do it for the listeners. We don't do it for ourselves. I can hear myself talk at any time of the day. And uh, I often do. And the thoughts that rattle around in my head, they're there all the time. I can always think my thoughts, but we don't always have the opportunity to share them together. And that's why I'm so glad you're here. And I'm so honored that you would join us for this time together. And we're going to jump in to look at the scriptures today. And, and to get us started, I, I was thinking about this and I wonder, do you have a motto that you go by? You know, some people have a motto that they use for their life, or sometimes they have a life verse from the Bible. But, but I was thinking about mottos this week. And you know, a motto really in simple terms is simply, it's a, it's a catchy phrase or a memorable phrase that we use. And it reflects a guiding principle of one kind or another. And if we adopt it for our lives, it reflects a guiding principle of our life. So I'm wondering, do you have a motto that you follow or maybe one that you like? For example, let me give you a few examples of mottos that'll get you started on this idea. So the first one I found when I was looking at was this, act or accept. I thought that's pretty good. You know, you can just let life run you over and you have to accept what comes or you can take action and be one who takes initiative to live your life, act or accept. How about this one? Progress, not perfection. Boy, that can be a trap getting caught in perfection, but we can all make progress, can't we? So progress, not perfection makes a lot of sense. Or I like this one word motto, 
And you might want to adopt this for a few months anyway, but here's the word. You ready? Simplify. Well, that's a pretty profound motto, isn't it? Simplify. You know, sometimes we uh, forget that we can make our lives simple. So there's a motto for you to consider. Or how about this one? Attitudes are contagious. Make yours worth catching. Well, that's pretty good too. And we know the importance of attitudes and maybe you'd like to take that as your motto. No, no obligation to take one of these. Just the idea is what what does a motto do for us and what might be our motto? You've probably heard this one. This has been around for a while. It kind of got everybody's imagination. It's the simple phrase, seize the day. Or you might've heard somebody say, carpe diem, means seize the day. That's a motto some people follow. Or how about this one? This one you've heard, I'm sure of this one. And some people need to follow it. Do no harm. Do no harm. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? This one I kind of like, I've, I've used this one. It's a, it, you could call it a motto, you could call it a proverb, but I th thought it was very helpful. It is better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. I, I, I love that idea, don't you? A lot of people complain about everything, but hey, isn't it better to light a candle than complain about the darkness that only a candle can get rid of? Or how about this one from Helen Keller? Life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. Uh, that's pretty stark terms. Or Winston Churchill said this one. This is really quite interesting. And, and you might have to think about this one a little bit, but, um, but it's, it's a good one. Are you ready? Here's what Winston Churchill said. If you're going through hell, keep going. Well, that's pretty good. You don't want to park there, do you? If you're going through hell, keep going, absolutely keep going. And no matter what's going on in your life, keep going, keep going, keep going. Pretty good idea there. Uh, how about this one? This one really got my attention. I live my life on my terms. Hmm, boy, that one got my attention big time because that one seems like to me, that's the reflection of our times. Everybody wants to have it their way. Everybody wants to live life on their terms. Everybody wants everything to line up to what they want to do. And they expect that. And life doesn't always work that way. And I don't know that we ought to adopt that kind of perspective, but it sure is what goes on around us today. And it, to me, it relates a little bit, well, maybe more than a little bit. I'll let you decide that to the lesson that we're to look at from Psalm 14. Here's a motto, you've probably heard this one, in God we trust. Now, I like that one for a lot of reasons, I hope you do too, in God we trust. It's the motto of the state of Florida. Now, that's one reason I like it, I guess. It's also printed on a lot of, lot of items that we have in our everyday life from license plates to coins to other things. And it's a good one. It's a good reminder. In God we trust. Well, I want to look at a motto that I sure hope you don't adopt. It's been adopted by many more people than recognize that they've adopted it. Sometimes we um, have to kind of be honest that, that we act like it's our motto too. And so we want to challenge ourselves and, and we want to stretch ourselves, but we also want to to see in the world around us. 
the reality of this motto that Psalm 14 tells us about, and that God then comes to put his input in at the end so that we'll have some hope and confidence in the future. But the motto is simple. Here it is. There is no God. I call that the motto of the fool. It's from Psalm 14, and that's the way it's described in Psalm 14. You probably remember this if you don't make the connection right away. You remember it when I read it. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Well, that's a pretty powerful motto, and yet it's a reason for us to think through this idea a little bit today and correct ourselves, challenge ourselves, give thanks to God because he, he steps in the gap for us when there are too many people or even one person adopting that motto and behaving in a way that God describes as foolish or behaving in a way that identifies that person as what God calls a fool. So let's take a look at Psalm 14. Let's get started on that. And uh, let me read that Psalm for us. I'm going to read from the New International Version. You may have a different English translation, but I want to start with this one because it gives us a pretty clear idea. The Psalm is not long, but keep in mind the way I framed that, that this statement that pops up in verse one, there is no God. That statement can be seen as a motto of the people who behave in the way the psalm describes. And it serves as a motto or a, a motto for bad behavior, but it also points out what God is going to do to help his people in the context of foolish behavior. So let's take a look. Psalm chapter 14, verse one. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there, are, but there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Psalm 14, characterized or introduced by the idea that a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, one of the things that I checked into when I was looking at this psalm was, was how other people describe it. And I was real interested that, that one of the people that writes about Psalm 14 described it as a prophetic psalm because it denounces what that writer called the society of fools. And I thought that's pretty insightful. He goes on to say that, that the writer of the psalm does not make himself a victim of this foolish behavior of this society of fools. And so because he writes in the way he does, 
and denounces this, it can be viewed as prophetic, forth-telling to the people involved, here's what God says, and here's the error of your ways. So let's take a look and let's go down through the verses in this one, and let's see what, what's going on here. Start with that idea that the fool saying there is no God. Now that's a statement, and, and sometimes we need to remind ourselves of this, because I think people have occasionally gotten this confused. That's a statement of the fool's perspective. There is no God. It's not a statement of fact. We know better. But the fool says there is no God. It's more like a philosophical assertion that God does not exist, that the, that the foolish person, the fool, as God calls him or her, just simply decides God does not exist and so asserts that as though it's reality. It's interesting that it's a, or at least comes across as a very confident assertion that, that God is unconcerned about our behavior, particularly the, uh, the fool's behavior, or the, the perspective that the fool has on his own behavior. So it's, it's an assertion that says, I'm living as though there is no God. That's what it comes down to. And, and, and that's, that's a very important distinction. We'll talk about that some more as we go along. But it's very important to think about that that way, that this is an assertion that there is no God, not based on fact, but based on the perspective that the fool has adopted, the perspective that the fool thinks about his own behavior. So let's explore that a little bit more, because I think this concept of, of fo folly or foolishness or the behavior of a fool is very significant, and it's not one that that really is, is, is something we think about much. We think about it in a much different way than the Bible does, and so we want to explore that a little bit. So, so I asked myself a few questions, and, and I started by asking myself, well, what is meant by the person described as the fool? What do, what's the Bible really mean about that, particularly Psalm 14? What does that really mean? Well, as I explored that, I, I realized that it's not what we might think. You know, when I think of foolish behavior, I might think of a silly person. Maybe you think of a silly person. Maybe you know somebody who's just characterized by silly. And, and it's fun, and it's entertaining, and, and you like them a lot, but it's just kind of silly. Or we might think of, of a, a jester of some kind, you know, someone who, who makes jokes or tries to entertain in a frivolous way or a uh, humorous way, a joking way. Um, occasionally, we might think of, of a foolish person as someone who just can't know any better or, or can't do any better. They're just, that's who they are by some limitations. And, and we may be not, not able to understand the limitations, but we just kind of see that. Well, that's not what the Bible talks about. When we think of that kind of silly behavior or the behavior of a jester, that's not what the Bible has in mind. The Bible is talking about a different kind of person. So let me give you some ideas of what, what the Bible means by that so we can understand, because the Bible has a clear understanding of that, much clearer than we do. Uh, and it's, it's the focus of, of a, a lot of the biblical text that uh, gives a contrast between foolish behavior and wise behavior, the person who is a fool and the person who is wise. 
So the first thing that I want to mention related to this person that, that the Bible describes as a fool is that this is a person who lacks judgment. They just lack judgment. And, and the Hebrew there connects not just the lack of judgment, but connects the, this to the idea that this person is morally deficient. They just don't manage right and wrong correctly. So, so that idea of morally, moral deficiency is really important. The idea of lacking judgment is very important. And, and again, it's not someone that's simple or gullible or someone with limited, limited ability that they're just kind of, that's just who they are and all they can be. That's our conception. That's not what the Bible means. When the Bible talks about someone who is described as a fool, it's someone who is willfully ignorant of God and closes him or herself off to God's wisdom, to God's truth. It's, it might be someone that says, I just don't want to hear it. And so they willfully remain unaware of what God says and what God expects. That's the fool of Psalm 14. Now, today, some of those kind of people might be people that, that have decided they're going to measure God by themselves. Every now and then, someone behaves as though they are the, the standard by which God should be measured, and they expect God to measure up to their expectations. Well, the Bible says that it's supposed to be the other way around, that we're supposed to measure ourselves by God's standards. And wisdom would measure oneself by God's standards, but the fool measures God by his or her standards. Or, or you might hear it this way, um, a person who really has heard God clearly, but even though they know exactly what God has said, they decide to reject God's command or God's wisdom, however it might be, and they might do it just simply by rejecting it out of hand and saying, well, I don't believe that. Uh, we hear that a lot more than I think we used to. And it might be true that you struggle with belief, but when we reject God's wisdom out of hand, that is what the Bible is talking about when it describes a fool. My life as a pastor, I've seen that sometimes people come to church and, and when they bump up against God's correction or when they hear teaching from the scriptures that attempts to connect their behavior with them taking responsibility for their behavior, or with God saying, you know, you need to change your perspective on this, uh, they reject God's correction. And, and when challenged, they run from God and the church. They just take off. And it's really sad to see that kind of foolish behavior, because in so many cases, so many cases, and if, and if you're tempted to do this, you need to hear this, in so many cases, those people that come so close to God helping them, so many times they run, they miss what God was about to be able to do for them in their life. They miss the healing, the strengthening, the ability to, to press through some challenge in life or to get over some disappointment, but they run from God and the church. In a sense, what those people are doing is... is um, saying to God, I, I don't believe that, or I don't want to hear what you have to say. I'm going to be willfully ignorant 
I don't want to have to face myself for you. And that's that's the, the lack of judgment, the unwillingness to hear from God that characterized the fool of Psalm 14. Another way we might see this, and I'm just trying to give you a few, you probably can think of other people in other situations, but another way we sometimes see this is, and, and I don't see this a lot, but I do see it some, uh, maybe it's out there more than I know, maybe you can help the people around you think through this, but every now and then you come across people who, they don't say it this way, and they wouldn't want anybody to say this about them, but they place themselves above God and his people, the church. Somehow you just, you just pick it up from their attitude, their behavior that, well, the church is okay and God's okay, but but they're really above it all. And, and they might even attend church. They might even participate in things. But when push comes to shove, sort of, they, they're above all of that. And, and nobody can expect them to, to do this or to do that. Nobody expects them to, to serve by moving chairs or pulling weeds uh, from the landscaping or anything like that. They're just, no, they're just not that kind of person. Thank you very much. Well, we need to be careful that we don't fall into this foolish kind of behavior and develop this kind of thinking. Uh, very careful because it's it's not at all something that the Bible admires or that or that puts forward for us to follow. It is actually something that the Bible describes in in pretty unpleasant terms because we read through the text and you heard some of the things that go on and and one of the things that that Psalm 14 does is it gives us some idea of the behavior of the person described in verse one as a fool. It says they're corrupt. They do vile things. Well, that's a pretty strong statement there to be corrupt, that their deeds are vile. That's very strong language. So, so what does the Bible mean by that? Well, when we look at the word more carefully and we try to understand it, the way the word corrupt is used here and and I think we would say that that fits our understanding of the word corrupt, is that it's immoral behavior. It's behavior that's clearly wrong. That's what immoral behavior means. It's behavior that, that is wrong. God says don't do it, and people do it. It's wrong behavior, and that's corrupt behavior. Uh, another part of the definition of the idea of corrupt, as it's used here, is that they lack integrity. It just doesn't measure up what what the um, the behavior should be and what theirs is. It's just not the same. And and in some cases, maybe they try to hide that. In other cases, maybe it's not hidden, but they just don't make the connection that their behavior lacks integrity. I think the the text of the Bible would would indicate that the person that Psalm 14 is describing does know the difference between right and wrong does know that their behavior lacks integrity. They know it, but maybe they don't want to do anything about it. So I was thinking some more about that idea of corrupt and trying to make sure that I understood corrupt in the way we do, and then maybe can communicate it in the way the Bible means it. So I asked the guys that we have on Wednesday morning, we have a, a men's group that meets early on Wednesday morning. And so this past Wednesday, I asked them, I said, well, what do you think of when you think of corrupt behavior? And wow, they were all over this. I was, I was very impressed. 
they said things like, well, corrupt behavior is when you accumulate power and money. And boy, oh boy, is that right? So many places you look, it's all about power and money. Or they said it's illegal activity. Yeah, that's pretty good. Or misusing our trust. You know, it's a bad thing when people trust you and you misuse it, but that's to them, that was corrupt behavior. Or another part of that they said was you don't care who gets hurt. You just don't care if it hurts somebody. You're going to do what's good for you. In other words, the corrupt person is going to do what benefits them and they don't care how it affects somebody else. So they're, they are corrupt and they do vile things. And, and one of the definitions I was looking into this idea, well, what's vile things? We kind of have an idea of that. But one of the statements that people who study this suggested was that it's repulsive behavior. I thought that's pretty good too. Vile things, repulsive behavior. And then, then I kept drilling down a little farther and a little farther. And I came up with this idea that this concept of a fool is really living out practical atheism. Yes, it's characterized by sinful behavior. Yes, the fool of Psalm 14 lives as if there is no God and certainly no accountability to God. They don't have to answer for their behavior. So they are, in a sense, whether they say they believe in God or not, they are practical atheists because they don't give God any place in their lives. They don't give God any consideration, they live as though there is no God. So they say in their heart, there is no God. Uh, and and, and it's, this is very important. It's very important. Don't, don't miss this. They aren't fools, and therefore they live the way I've been describing. Okay, make sure you understand that. They aren't fools, and then they exhibit corrupt behavior. They aren't fools, so then they do vile things. That's That's not what I'm suggesting. It's corrupt behavior and doing vile things. It's living like that that makes them fools. That's what the Bible is saying. It's because of the way they discount God and don't allow for God and ignore God and deliberately push God and his wisdom away that makes them fools. It's failing to acknowledge God. That's what makes them fools. It's not that they're fools first, and that's just the way fools live. No, it's their chosen behavior, and that behavior is what the Bible says makes them or qualifies them to be called a fool. So it's very, very interesting to make sure we, we understand that. It's, it's the, the, the idea that this person is a fool is because of what they've done, not because being a fool makes them do things. Now, the idea of, a, of folly or of a fool is, is in the Bible, and it's pretty well spelled out in the Bible. We don't think about it as much. So let's talk about the general concept in the Bible of, of folly. Well, folly is the opposite of wisdom in the Bible, and the fool is the opposite of a wise person. So you can contrast foolishness with wisdom, and that gives you a little bit of a picture of what the Bible means when it talks about folly or when it describes someone as a fool, they aren't wise. Now, we don't use that concept so much, but in ancient times, they really did understand it. It had a definite meaning, and it had vivid mental images that they could understand and use. So the Bible uses a lot of humorous kinds of images to portray the actions of a fool. For example, in Proverbs, it says, the talk of fools is like whips on their backs. And in another place, it says, 
one might as well cut off one's foot as send a message via a fool. And this one you may have heard. Fools naturally revert to their folly like a dog returns and consumes his own vomit. Whoa, that's a pretty strong statement there, isn't it? That's a very strong statement. But, but see, it, it, it's giving you a picture of, of the behavior that results in a person being called a fool. Fools naturally revert to their folly like a dog returns and consumes his own vomit. Now, that's a vivid picture, isn't it? And, uh, and I'm sorry to give you that picture, but we do need to understand it, right? We do need to understand it very well. Another image from Proverbs, the fool is so closely tied to his folly that you could put him in a mortar and pound him with a pestle, but still not get the folly out of him. Whoa, that is really strong. You can pound him like you pound something in a mortar with a pestle and you can't get the folly out of him. That's deliberately rejecting God and his wisdom. That's turning away from God and his wisdom. That's a serious serious problem. Well, I'm beginning to think you get the idea of of what we're talking about and what the Bible talks about, what it talks about a fool. And it's very important for us to get that idea. And we're going to continue down this road a little bit farther. We continue to to explore the psalm and this idea of folly in the Bible. And we're exploring that so we can realize that this is what we want to avoid. We want to seek the wisdom of God so that we don't get caught up in folly, so that we don't find ourselves in foolish behavior. And we're going to pick that up in a few minutes, so I hope you'll stay with us, because remember, we do this for you, and without you here, it's why bother? So we're going to take a little bit of a break. We're going to take a drink, encourage you to stretch, get your Bible. We're going to look at this whole concept a little bit more and see how it ends. We'll be right back. Because of COVID-19, the average American worries about their immune health four times a day. That's 112 times per year. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains 15 full doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day pill-free gel pack. It tastes great, is convenient on the go, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. You'll find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all.
glad to see you're still with us because we do this for you and without you, it wouldn't really be worthwhile. So thanks for staying with us. We're gonna continue on exploring Psalm 14 and this whole concept of, of folly because we don't wanna be that kind of people. And sometimes the Bible helps us understand how to avoid something as well as sometimes it says stretch toward something. So let's begin this section of the program by reading the psalm again. Uh, I, I really like the, the English translation we call the message. I don't know if you've ever used it. Some people get a little concerned about some of these translations because they don't seem to think they're like the Bible. I, I understand that. It doesn't sound like the Bible I remember reading when I was younger. We, and we really benefit from all of these ideas. And, and I like the message. And in fact, the more I've used it, the more I like it. The more I've used standard English translations that, that sometimes people say are better, and they are better in certain ways for certain reasons. But the more I've used them and then looked at the message, the more I've appreciated it. So, so give it a try. Uh, and I want to read it. And, and you're going to find this really says some different well, not so much different things. It says them in different ways, uh, quite a bit different sometimes. So this is Psalm 14, starting with verse one from the message. Bilious and bloated they gas. God is gone. Their words are poison gas fouling the air. They poison rivers and skies. Thistles are their cash crop. God sticks his head out of heaven. He looks around. He's looking for someone not stupid. One man, even. God expectant. Just one God-ready woman. He comes up empty. A string of zeros. Useless, unshepherded sheep. Taking turns pretending to be shepherd. The ninety and nine follow their fellow. Don't they know anything, all these imposters? Don't they know they can't get away with this? Treating people like a fast food meal over which they're too busy to pray? Night is coming for them as nightmares, for God takes the side of victims. Do you think you can mess with the dreams of the poor? You can't, for God makes their dreams come true. Is there anyone around to save Israel? Yes, God is around. God turns life around. Turned around, Jacob skips rope. Turned around, Israel sings laughter. Well, I just love the imagery in that and the, the way it helps me reimagine what God is saying to us. So, so let's jump right in. We've been talking about this idea of folly and, and what the fool says in his heart. And and one of the things we should come to grips with is that, the, that this whole idea does come out of the heart of the person. This whole idea of there is no God comes out of that person's heart. Now, Proverbs, in another place, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But this is the fool we're just talking about here that Psalm 14 describes, saying there is no God. And it's self-destructive behavior. It's lack of discipline. It's, it's a kind of crazy confidence in his or her own wisdom. And they just put it out there. Here's my motto. There is no God. Well, they would have been better to be quiet. Abraham Lincoln's given credit for this quote, and it's a great one. Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak 
and to remove all doubt. And you know, that's what, that's what happens. See, that statement parallels Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool or even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. See, but fools, they put it out there. There is no God. And they behave that way. And that's what makes them foolish. Someone is a fool because of their behavior. Now, what drives that behavior? Well, the Psalm says that, and, and you got it, didn't you? The fool says in his heart. So, so that's really a key. That, that It's the heart that drives the behavior that leads to being a fool. And what does the fool say in his heart? The fool says there is no God. Now, most of the time, people who are the kind that meet this definition don't go around proclaiming their motto. They're smart enough to know that's really not a wise thing to do. And so remember, the reality of a fool's folly is revealed by his or her actions. And, and now today, you know, most of us want to be evaluated by our intentions. But the Bible says, hey, pay attention to what you do. And for a fool, that statement represents, demonstrates unbelief. It's a heart issue. And that leads to corrupt behavior, the actions that we talked about that are corrupt and vile. Those two things are linked in the Bible, that idea of unbelief and corrupt behavior. And that's what's going on right here, Psalm 14. Now, in biblical language, the heart refers to something different than we tend to think about because we use words a little bit differently. It, it doesn't mean anything bad or right and wrong. It's just that we need to understand when the translators give us the English translation of the Bible and they use the word heart, they're using it in a specific way that fits the biblical concept. So in, in the biblical concept of heart, that word heart refers to the center of the human spirit, to our emotions, to our thoughts, to our motivations, to our courage, or I guess we could say lack of courage, to our actions, to our knowledge of right and wrong. Or sometimes we say conscience, although I'm not sure that's the best description. I think a knowledge of right and wrong is a better way to think about that. But anyway, all of these things are un understood in a biblical sense as wrapped up in the use of that word heart. So when Proverbs 4, 4.23 makes this statement, you may have heard this, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. You see what, what Proverbs is saying, your heart is so important, you need to take care of it because Everything you do, all of your behaviors flow out of your heart. So when we struggle with behaviors, we should look at our heart because the fix is in the heart, not in the behavior. We need to drill down a little farther. And so Psalm 14 links this idea of unbelief and corrupt behavior is coming from the heart. And the corrupt behavior results from unbelief, a failure to acknowledge God. Because verse 2 talks about how God looks down to see if anybody seek him. And when it says he looks down, it reminds us that God is sovereign, and he rules over all the world. 
and he looks for any people who are wise, any people who seek God. And he looks for that because as the Bible helps us understand, and as the Bible teaches us, a wise person who seeks God refers to a person who obeys and worships God. So the wise people are the ones who listen to God and do what he says and honor him. And so God looks down, and, and it's really quite stark what it says in verse 3, that, that God doesn't see anybody. Uh, all have turned away, it says. They've turned away from God. All have become corrupt. They lack integrity or uprightness. No one does good, not even one. No one is admirable or exhibits moral excellence. It's really quite stunning to see how big a statement the Bible makes and how specific about no one seeking God, no one being wise. Now, the idea of all have turned is, is important for us to understand. And, and in ancient times, they, they got that. Um, there's a, an old Babylonian prayer for forgiveness where they ask forgiveness whether they're guilty of sin or not. They have this idea of a, of a universal guilt, even though they didn't have the, the same understanding of theological benefits that we do. They didn't have the same doctrinal clarity, but they had this sense of a, of a universal experience of offending God at some point or another. And, and in the ancient world, in, in the larger ancient world outside of Israel, the gods had not revealed themselves. And so religious obligation took a ritual form because they needed to deal with what they believed were offenses that had been committed. And it was easy to believe that they had offended their understanding of God. And again, this is outside of Israel all the time. Now, for the Israelites, they understood that ritual offenses could occur, but they also knew that God had revealed his law. And they were familiar with the kinds of behavior that could offend God, that violated God's commands. So they knew when they had done something they shouldn't have done. They didn't know in the same way we do in terms of the doctrine of original sin, for example, but they understood that, that yeah, they needed to deal with their behavior. Now today, and, and I'm kind of drawing some conclusions here, maybe you've seen some of this, maybe you have seen it a little differently, but we need to think about this. Seems to me that today many people think, well, yes, I, I know I'll offend God. I, I understand that I'm not perfect. And, and they might go on to, to say, and they don't say it in these words, but the, again, it's the behavior that we're looking at. It's the behavior that defines us. They'll go on to say, well, yes, I'll offend God. I can't help but offend God. And I've, I've even heard people say, I sin every day. And I, I, a little bit of something dies in me whenever I hear that. And if I get the opportunity, I try to talk to people about that because that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, but they'll but they'll say, I sin every day, and and then the implication is, and sometimes people will say something like this. Well, I'll just work it out with God later, uh, you know. When and and I think they have a concept that they'll stand before God someday, but they think at that point they'll be able to talk it over with Him, and He'll understand. And and then the saddest conclusion that that is kind of we're left with is that that these people think, well, what else can I do? You know, I'm going to offend God. I, I realize that. And what else can I do but, but try to work it out with him and, and have confidence that he'll understand? 
well, I have good news for people that think that way. The reality is rather simple and straightforward. God's expectations are clear. It starts oftentimes with what we call the Ten Commandments. God's expectations are clear. It's also clear that because of the coming of Jesus, because he died, was buried, rose from the grave, that salvation has been provided. He took on himself the sins of the world. And it's clear from Jesus' words that the invitation is not to get trapped in this cycle of sin or not even to try to manage the cycle of sin. It's very clear Jesus says in no uncertain terms, change your life and follow me. Sometimes I say, change your life and give allegiance to Jesus. That's what makes the difference. That's moving from what the Bible calls a fool to wisdom, because it's cleaning up our act and following what Jesus says. Well, verse 4 asks a rather rhetorical question, will evildoers ever really get it? Will they ever understand? And, and don't they realize that that God will defend his people. And the Bible says that God will defend his people. It's very interesting, uh, very interesting description here. Just, I, I couldn't get away from this one, but it talks about how these evildoers, they, they devour God's people as though they're eating bread. And I thought, boy, that's really an interesting, an interesting way of saying it. And, and I don't know whether I grasp fully what the author is saying with that, but it's, it's stunning to think that evildoers will consume God's people like they're eating bread, like it's a regular practice. It's something done without thought. Uh, or, and maybe, and they think of people as something to consume, something to use for their benefit. You know, the verse says they don't call on the Lord. They don't think about praying or as my Wednesday guys would say, give no thought to praying. They don't give a thought to God. They don't invite God into their lives. They don't ask God for help. That's what evildoers do. And when people do that, they are what the Bible calls evildoers. But then verse 5 begins to talk about how that's going to be handled. And it reminds us that evildoers will one day be filled with dread. Now that's prophetic. Remember I said Psalm 14 was prophetic? That's prophetic. That's saying what will happen. One day they will realize. And one day they will realize that God is with the righteous. God is really with them. Now, some of us say, well, are we the righteous? Well, understand that in, in this context right here, and sometimes I think we get a, a little bit, how should I say, carried away or reluctant or embarrassed or hesitant to think of ourselves as righteous. But in this situation, the way it's used here, when it talks about someone as, as being righteous, it means they are characterized by following God's standard of morality and justice. So if you want to be with this group called the righteous, then we need to understand what God expects. And the Bible tells us what God expects. It's not complicated. God expects certain behavior. Don't steal. Don't have any God ahead of God. Honor your father and mother. You know, the basic Ten Commandments starts there. God tells us. And, and when it 
the definition that I gave you, that the righteous are characterized by following God's standard of morality, what that means, we tend to think of morality in a, in a limited way. What, what it means when, when we use it in context like this, and we're talking about the Bible, it means that they're characterized by doing the right thing and doing it every time. So they're characterized by doing that which they know is right to do. And we could also flip it this way. They're characterized by not doing that which they know is wrong to do. So these people avoid wrong and embrace right. And that makes them righteous. And I don't think we should shrink from that. I think we should stretch toward that. I think we should stretch toward doing that which is right and avoiding that which is wrong. And it also includes that not only do they follow God's standard of right and wrong, but they also follow God's standard of justice. In other words, treating people right, keeping our promises, being honest with each other, being just in our actions, saying what we mean, mean what we say, all of the things that we think of as, as justice from God's perspective. Now, continuing down in verse six, it talks about how sinners frustrate oppressed people. And if you've ever been oppressed by someone, and not many of us have been seriously oppressed, but we might in some situations, um, you, you know how frustrating that could be when someone holds you down. Um, and I was thinking about this, these corrupt people, they really shame the oppressed. They kick them when they are down. And, and that's frustrating, that's debilitating. And, and that's what verse six says sinners do. Did you look at that? Verse six, you evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor. That's pretty serious stuff. It's pretty serious to be called an evildoer too, don't you think? But then it goes on to say, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. And this is where it really gets helpful for all of us who, who walk faithfully with God and all of us who stretch in God's direction. Because it says the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. In other words, the Lord gives us shelter. That's what a refuge is. It's a shelter. We find security when we find refuge in the Lord. And the Lord helps the people that are oppressed. That's clear from the scripture. So the Lord is a refuge from, for the oppressed. That is really good news, don't you think? Uh, I, th I think so. Well, then verse 7 wraps it up with, with a very explicit prayer. Uh, in poetic language. This, of course, is a, is a poem from, from the Psalms. It's a book of poetry. But it starts with the, with the hope, with the, with the desire that the Lord would deliver from Zion. And that's figurative language to say that, the, that God would come from where he is to deliver his people, his people Israel. And it's clear from that that deliverance comes from God. We shouldn't forget that. You know, we get caught up in one thing or another, and we think that we are delivered some other way. But, but let's go back to the prayer Jesus taught us. What did he say? He told us to pray, deliver us from evil. And only God can deliver us from evil, and only God can deliver us from evil doers. So deliverance comes from God, and deliverance means and this is a common word when we need to think about this. Sometimes we think of salvation too narrowly, but deliverance means salvation. 
preserving people from harm or unpleasantness. And isn't that what salvation does? Salvation preserves people from the penalty of sin, preserves people from harm. And God does that in all kinds of ways, not just only in dealing with sin, but it says that deliverance comes from, from God, and that means salvation. That means God coming to the aid of his people. And we give thanks for that. That's really good news. And we need to pray that along with the psalmist, that, that God would come, give salvation to his people. Goes on to say that when the Lord restores his people, and it's important to notice in the text, it doesn't say if the Lord restores his people. No, it says when the Lord restores his people. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Now there it says the same thing twice. Jacob and Israel meaning the same idea, God's people. Rejoice, be glad, same idea. When the Lord restores his people, let his people rejoice and be glad. Wow, that's good news, isn't it? We should, we should anticipate that. We should give thanks for that. We should allow the Lord to be restoring us even now. Now, to be sure, that seems that the text is pointing to some future event, but to be sure, the Bible is full of assurance that God restores us even now, that God is in the business of restoring. And uh, again, my Wednesday, not, Wednesday morning friends uh, kind of put this together because earlier we talked about how the evildoers consume people like they're consuming bread. And now here it talks about how the Lord restores. Isn't it amazing? And we should not miss this, that evil consumes, but the Lord restores. Evil eats away at us, but the Lord builds us up, puts us back together, makes us whole. Evil chips away, eats away at people. But the Lord reverses that and brings restoration, wholeness, and healing. And maybe that's his good news for you today. Maybe you have felt like your life has been too much characterized by being consumed. Maybe you've been subject to oppressive people, what Psalm 14 calls evildoers. Maybe you've been on the wrong end of foolish behavior or the behavior of a fool. Take heart. Take heart. That's why you're here, just to take heart because now you know that evil consumes, so you aren't surprised that that's happened, because evil consumes. But did you realize the Lord restores? I often use Psalm 23 in the context of a memorial service or a funeral service, because it talks about how we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and we won't be afraid of evil. And it also talks about in Psalm 23, how the Lord restores my soul. And that's what I want for you, for all of us, that we might walk through some difficult times and we might be subject to the folly and the foolishness of evildoers, but we also are encouraged and built up and made whole by the restoration of God himself. Now, you may not think about it this way, but let me encourage you this week to think about it. If you struggle with this, let me, think, let me encourage you to think about it this way. 
Are you withholding permission for God to restore your soul? Are you keeping God at arm's length? Are you behaving a little bit like we described the fool earlier by turning away from or pushing God away? Would you turn toward him today, tomorrow, this next week? And would you allow him to restore your soul? That's what faith is. Faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And you can trust him to restore your soul soul. Will you do it? My prayer is that the Lord would bless you in ways you will recognize, and that he will come around you and help you and strengthen you and do something in you that you didn't know was possible, but you'll end up realizing it's restoration, and you'll realize that you have faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, the God who loves you and restores your soul. And all of God's people, let me hear you, all of God's people said, Amen. See you next week.